The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When I was 19 or 20 years old, I worked at a big sports park, a big indoor sports park. Those places that have, you know, uh, two indoor hockey rinks. Um, that you can convert to roller hockey rinks. They got the basketball courts, batting cages, and all of that. And um, what I did was, I was there during the day before many of the festivities happened. All of the local uh, basketball leagues, the, the school, grade school, high school leagues, all of that stuff happened at night or on the weekends. And I was there during the day. I remember running the squeegee on um or the uh the zamboni on uh on the floors and um one of the big things that i did was uh counting change counting collecting all the change from uh the pop machines from the vending machines and uh not only refilling the, the machines but also collecting all the change and then taking them into a little room where i uh counted all of it up and uh, put the change into the little sleeves and then took them to the bank uh, to deposit them. And thankfully, we didn't have an automated, uh, one of those automated things that you see on TV that uh, you always see in shows about casinos, where you can just run change or run bills through a machine and it'll count it automatically. Thankfully, that did not, uh, that was not deemed necessary for the amount of money that I was doing or uh, it wasn't considered necessary for the kind of uh, job that I had. I think my employment there was sort of more of a favor than any kind of expectation that I would uh, end up running the company someday. Obviously, I have not. But one of the great surprises of doing that was that in the little room where I was sitting and counting change, there was a TV up in the corner, and I came upon a show. This would have been 1999 or 2000 or so. I came upon a show uh, called Inside the Actor's Studio, and this was before Will Ferrell uh, started doing that on Saturday Night Live, and it was before every actor, it seemed, ended up going on that show. I remember at one point, I think uh, Brad Pitt or someone with a big name I remember reading in the paper that uh, some actors uh, revered the actor's studio so much, or they revered the people who had already been interviewed on the show, that um, that they didn't want to go on to the show until they had done 
a little bit more work. Um, so this was back then, before it became fairly popular and sort of became a stopover for everybody. And right around the time, this was uh, quite a, a lucky occurrence for me, right around the time that I began to learn that writers and uh, artists, painters, had biographies. At the time, I can remember finding my first books about Picasso or Edward Hopper or Hieronymus Bosch. Um, suddenly, I learned that the same was true for actors, not the actors that I knew, not uh, even then getting sick of seeing Tom Cruise's face, uh, apparently ageless face everywhere, um, but actors from black and white movies, or actors from the movies that I knew my father liked, like The Godfather, or directors. Um, it was really my introduction to uh, people talking about creativity. I wonder if that, is that true? Is that the first time that I actually heard people talking about creativity, about art, and about um, the kind of art that they were uh, actively involved in. I mean, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to interview a painter in the same way as an actor. And I think the only other versions of that would have been reading about the lives of writers and poets. James Joyce or T.S. Eliot would have been the two that I got into very early. So I think that's true. Uh, seeing uh, Jack Lemon, I think, was one of them. Um, Harrison Ford was another, and he seemed to be extremely uh, grateful that someone was taking him seriously as an actor. He seemed just really effusive, and I think the word is grateful, for being on the show and being taken seriously as an actor. Uh, Kevin Spacey, before he uh, got into all of his troubles, or was caught in all of his troubles, um, Many other actors, uh, Willem Dafoe was on there, I remember. Um, Steven Spielberg was up there. And, and it was just people not only talking about their own lives, but of the other actors that they knew, talking about Marlon Brando, people like that. And that was very important for me because just as I was beginning to think of myself as a poet or as a writer, I was reminded that there were these other art forms that uh, were just as serious and were taken just as seriously. And that might seem obvious to anybody out there, but for someone who is 19 or 20 years old, it's good to just be reminded of these things. And so when I came across an article in the New York Review of Books, it is uh, Simon Callow's review of, of a book called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act by Isaac Butler. I read it with, uh, with great interest. For those who would like to find it, it is in the August 18th, 2022 issue of the New York Review of Books. And I'll try to put a link to this in the, in the episode description. And um, I think as I've said before, especially when I'm talking about criticism, a lot of book reviews really are what you read on in the bathroom. Um, or there's something that you read in between doing 
something else, something more serious. But this essay uh, is one of the great examples, at least that I found in the last year, of something that goes way beyond that. It's sort of a little education in itself. And I wanted to just read a few passages from it and just to wonder what it is that, uh, that actors can teach writers, that what actors can teach poets. Actually, I'll start with one thing before then, um, also on the subject of movies, and that is that uh, I came across a movie critic who was, on, who was on YouTube and who was on Twitter an awful lot, and he seems to have a pretty good following on both of those places. And he was talking about the movie Don't Worry, Darling, um, and who, which was directed by Olivia Wilde and came out a few months ago. And it came out uh, amid a lot of controversy about the production of the movie and about um, the actors and the actresses that she was dealing with, the ones that were fired, the ones that um, replaced them, and the fact that Olivia Wilde seems to have uh, started a relationship with one of her, with uh, the male star of the movie. And the uh, movie critic said something to the effect of, um, if there wasn't all of this baggage already on the movie, if there wasn't all of this baggage uh, that is sort of making people want to be more sympathetic to the movie than they otherwise would, if the movie didn't have the baggage of being directed by a woman, um, all of these things, if this stuff didn't exist, then um, the movie critic goes to say, I don't think it would be getting as reviewed it wouldn't be getting uh, reviewed as well as it is. And the movie reviewer says, I think that's kind of sad and even a pathetic comment on our time that we can't just sit and only judge what is on the screen. Um, and what struck me there, if we want to talk about what actors and poets have in common, one thing right there is that uh, our critics... Um, are the same. Um, that strikes me as, I think it's new criticism, is it, um, from about uh, 50, 60, or 70 years ago. Um, we've heard this story already, that you should just focus on the work and not the biography of the person who did it, and uh, not on the drafts and how they got there, but just on the finished work, and that is what should be judged. And um, it should be, I believe, as new criticism was touted, as some sort of scientific approach to literature. And while the movie critic might not call what he's doing a scientific approach to movie criticism, I'm sure that some version of objectivity is what he claims that he's after, and that he might actually claim he is able to achieve. But I think that that uh, is silly. I think that's quite impossible. And I think that is one thing that, uh, that uh, actors and poets and writers have in common, is that our critics end up saying the exact same things, claiming the exact same things. And I'm sure that poets and actors also sometimes pretend at objectivity. And no doubt uh, 
In our celebrity-driven culture, the pendulum can swing, and very often does swing, too far in the direction of making biography a part of uh, how we react to a work of art or just uh, a silly movie. Um, But be that as it may, the idea that we can only react to what is on the screen, that we can only react to what is on the page, uh, seems to me to be nonsense. Um, we, we, We cannot turn off our minds just because we're watching a movie or reading a book. We cannot turn off our preconceptions or what we know or what we think we know or the gossip we heard, or whatever it is, um, just because we are suddenly sitting down with a book or a movie. Uh, This is a problem I've mentioned in essays and emails to friends many times that I've found myself doing, where I see someone in a store, or um, I see someone at a stoplight who's standing on a street corner, And I find myself, based on what they're doing or how they're standing there or a look on their face, I find myself uh, judging them or assuming that I know what's going on with them. And uh, by the time the light turns green, you know, I suddenly have the entire biography of some woman who's standing in the rain looking upset um, as if I know what's going on. I have to pull myself back from that all the time and realize that I am not uh, a great reader of humanity. I am not some sort of uh, person with a great intuitive sense of looking at people or reading a room. What I'm good at is making things up, and I have to stop myself and realize that what I'm doing most of the time um, is making these things up and that it is uh, very easy when we get caught in a critical mode, when we get caught in a uh, sort of a circle of critics or friends who think the same way, or even a friends who challenge each other openly all the time. Um, If we get caught up, especially if you're 18 or 19 or 20, with other writers or poets or artists or creative people, um, it's very easy to get caught up in that world and think that that is the only world. You're caught either in a university setting or if you're thinking of the movies, you're caught in this uh, community of people who have an awful lot of money and an awful lot of money to waste and an awful lot of time to waste. And you never get out of the ivory tower of Hollywood either. Or if it's just uh, the crowd that I was with when I was 20 years old, um, living somewhere between Erie, Pennsylvania and Cleveland, Ohio, um, just people who wanted to get into writing novels and poetry and plays and try as we might, uh, we weren't nearly as cultured as we wished we were. But spending the weekends together talking about things talking about the books that we've read, Um, that idea that it wasn't enough for one person to read the book. You almost felt that it didn't uh, matter until everyone had read the book, and then you could talk about it. Um, It is so very easy to get caught up in that crowd 
uh, or that, that uh, not even crowd, that sort of hermetically sealed mentality of whatever your in-group is. And I realized actually what it was when I see my daughter at kindergarten with her other kindergartners. She's in a very small class. There may be uh, 15 kids at most uh, in her class. And it struck me that, uh, especially for kids who are coming out of uh, five and six-year-olds who are coming out of COVID, that isolation of being stuck in the house with their parents uh, for much longer than they wish that they uh, needed to be, um, it struck me how quickly these kids formed their own in-group as a group of 10 to 15 uh, kids who are all five or six years old. And they immediately figured out the superhero stuff that they liked or the kind of blocks, the kind of magnetic blocks they liked or the kinds of songs they liked to sing or the kinds of stuff they liked to bring at lunch um, where they were everyone's learning what it is to envy what someone is wearing or what someone is eating. And the envied person is learning how to walk around with their head a little higher and all of that. And it struck me what it was like watching my daughter go from that group to going to uh, a playground of some kind where there are entirely different kids and suddenly realizing that um, the group she's with all week, the 10 to 15 kids that she's with all week, that she spends um, six hours a day with, it's uh, powerful, it's necessary, she needs to be doing it, it's immersive, it's life-changing, she will never have this incredible experience of uh, for the first time experiencing other kids for this long during the day. This first experience will never happen again. These kids will be special for the rest of her life, even if she forgets their names exactly or the exact memories. Um, it's sort of like a religious experience, it's sort of like a conversion experience, it's sort of like the experience, as I've said, of people in a university setting or on a set in a movie or just of realizing that there are five people that you know who love Poet X and you get together and talk about them. Um, the, the meaning and the power of that experience is real. It's actual. There's nothing to take away from that experience. But it is immensely discomforting and even threatening, even for five and six-year-olds who've never felt this before, the discomfort and the threat is right there, seeing that there are other kids who go to other buildings for six hours a day with 10 or 15 other kids and do completely other things. They have different teachers, they have different parents, they have different morning routines, they have all of this. And to, to realize the complexity of that is... Uh, is massive. And so I understand how it is that a movie critic who is not a five or a six-year-old at all, I understand how it is that a movie critic can come around to saying, well, one of the ways that I'm going to deal with this complexity is to imagine that there can be a scientific approach to criticism 
or the artist, the artist themselves, who can say there is a scientific approach to making movies, writing a poem, uh, doing a painting, writing a novel, or if not a scientific uh, approach, there is still the pomposity of, well, there is my approach, and my approach is clearly better. And of course, there is the religious version of that as well. But anyhow, 20 minutes in, I get to the article here. Um, this is a really nice part. Uh, th so the, the whole uh, article is about uh, quote-unquote method acting and where it came from and how it got to America and how it influenced uh, acting uh, on up to right now. But here's one passage that is wonderful. It says, uh, in 1935... Uh, Laurence Olivier's performances in Romeo and Juliet, where he alternated the parts of Romeo and Mercutio, they were regarded as ultra-realist. Ten years later, in his Shakespeare films, it is clear that he was a somewhat stylized actor. On stage twenty years after that, he was dismissed by many as monstrously mannered. And Simon Callow says this, his acting, Laurence Olivier's acting itself, had not changed the temper and taste of the times had. The shock of the new has a built-in decay, and it is in the nature of pioneers to believe that they have finally reached the promised land, the end of the rainbow. But of course, and this is me saying it, of course they never actually do. Um, I was struck by... Actually, let's get to the next comment here. Um, the next comment is very nice. Um, we're talking about Stanislavski here, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Russian actor who originated the so-called method acting. And uh, the first interesting thing they mentioned in the article, which I never knew, was that uh, Stanislavski is not his name. Um, he changed his name to Stanislavski to uh, avoid embarrassing his family in Russia. Um, it's, a, it's something that uh, I'm dealing with reading a biography of Van Gogh, where uh, his mother, Van Gogh's mother, raises uh, uh, Vincent and the other children to take walks during the day around town, uh, to be seen, to be seen by the other people as an example, as a symbol of, we are, we're not upper class, but we're obviously not lower class either. We have the time for leisure. That was the point of these walks. You're supposed to dress up and let people know that you have time for the leisure, and that you look good. Um, she uh, interested her children in the garden behind the parsonage where they lived. Uh, she got them into flowers, vegetables, and, and then eventually each child had their own uh, patch of ground to plant things, and they learned about color, and uh, or just texture, really, just growth, that, that whole thing there of, uh, of doing that she felt was, was necessary to teach her children. And finally, another uh, sort of not lower but not upper class thing of leisure was to learn to draw and to paint. And uh, the interesting thing 
uh, and I think this keys into Stanislavski not wanting to embarrass his family, is that uh, what Van Gogh did throughout the rest of his life, he took the things, those three things, uh, and sure many more, that his mother instilled in him, uh, the walking and the observing, uh, the interest in nature, specifically flowers, and color, and profusion, and the growth and decay of things, um, and, and of course drawing and painting. He took all of those things, and he took them to uh, an extreme that his mother did not appreciate, but which uh, was essential to uh, Vincent's own life. He had to do it. He was only doing what he was taught, he might say. And as I get into his letter, as I might actually see him saying such a thing. And it's interesting to, to find where that dividing line is between uh, a respectable version of these leisure activities or these things that are just to, supposed to educate you, to get you going on a quote-unquote normal life, and when that passes over into being the thing that you do in your life. You don't want a normal life. You want these things that feed a different kind of life. Um, but if this next passage says, it's very, it's very short, but it says, um, had Stanislavski been a quote-unquote natural as an actor, an actor of instinctive genius, there would have been no system. He would not have developed uh, his system, which became, in America, uh, method acting and delving into your character's emotions and trying to uh, build everything up out of what you have discovered by going deep into the character. Uh, had Stanislavski been a natural, had he been an actor of instinctive genius, there would have been no system. And that should be hope for all of us out there that uh, if we are not natural writers, if we are not natural poets, if we are not natural painters, if we are not natural talkers, just walking into a, a group of adult human beings and being able to naturally talk to them. Um, on the one hand, we're told or we're, we're given from childhood on upwards, if you want to talk about five and six-year-olds, um, from that time forward, we are given clues, aren't we? We're given indications of uh, where our deficiencies are, things that we should be ashamed of. But very often, it is where that limitation is that uh, the real creativity happens. You want to look for the part that is a little bit broken, a little bit bent, not the part that you pick up on quickly and immediately and almost too easily, because then it becomes almost imitative or pastiche or you get tired of it, it becomes boring, because you can just go ahead and do it. It's like, uh, just becomes as easy as walking at some point. But if it's difficult, if you can't quite wrap your mind around it, um, then you have to figure it out for yourself. And it's the figuring out that is where the real creativity, at least it seems to me, that's where a lot of it lies. Let's see what this next passage is. Um, yes, this is nice. Um, 
they're talking about uh, one of the American schools, I think the school of, of Lee Strasberg, who ended up going to Moscow, and uh, I think in the 30s or 40s, and, um, and one of the quotes about this, uh, about this American theater troupe that went there with their own version of, of, um, of whatever method was, it says uh, their version of acting, their version of studying acting and perfecting acting, whatever that is, uh, it went beyond Stanislavski's idea of verisimilitude. And yeah, that's basically the idea. It went beyond Stanislavski's idea of verisimilitude. And that brings me to something I've mentioned many times here, which is that there isn't verisimilitude. Um, there's only convincing. There's uh, that wonderful thing in Peter Ackroyd's biography of Shakespeare, where it's very clear that Shakespeare is taking potted plots from uh, quote-unquote high culture, stealing ideas from Ovid or from Plutarch, but he's just as well uh, taking ideas from quote-unquote low culture as well. Um, that are not realistic. Uh, the idea in in uh, Othello that uh, a whole uh, plot point uh, hinges on whether or not a lady drops a handkerchief and the wrong guy finds the handkerchief and thinks his wife is cheating on him. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. The point is not realism. It is whether or not it is convincing. And in Peter Aykroyd's phrasing in, in his biography of Shakespeare, he's talking about momentum and action, that there is something that Shakespeare was able to do um, that no one has ever really been able to do, at least in English, ever since. And that is that he was able to create characters and to set his characters going in plots um, with such a sense of confidence on his own part that what he was doing would be convincing or that it would be uh, so powerful, so uh, propulsive, if we can use a word that is overused today in book blurbs, uh, so propulsive, it carries you forward so much that you don't stop to think about how silly the handkerchief thing is, um, that you're able to go along with it. It is not realism. It is whether or not it is convincing. It's whether or not it has the power and the movement of something that keeps you going. It keeps you turning the page. And this was something that I sort of got caught up with around the same age when I was 20 or so, uh, writing uh, avant-garde or you might say experimental novels. There was an idea, and it's an understandable one, as I said about the movie critic. Um, I'm, I'm living in the middle of nowhere in basically rural Ohio. Um, I'm not going to college for any of this stuff. Um, the internet is just sort of on the periphery. It's sort of entering my life. But I have no way of communicating with people uh, at universities, and I send things out to Random House and get rejection letters from them. And then I find a few people that I can talk to about these things and that I sort of agree with them and they agree with me and we teach each other things. And th that, then those teaching moments are real. They're genuine. They're powerful. 
And like the ones I mentioned about kindergarten, they're, they're stuff that I will never forget. They're real moments, real human and artistic and creative moments, real moments of connection. But at the same time, the, the, uh, the error in my ways, you might say, was imagining that uh, doing things experimentally, doing things avant-garde, was somehow more real than realism. I mean, all of it, the point of it is that all of it is artifice. There is no verisimilitude in acting, whether Stanislavski or somebody else. There's no uh, realism or naturalism or whatever it is in any kind of writing. All of it is artifice in some way or another. And it's just nice to see some version of that uh, being spoken about here. Let's find another passage here. Um, let's see. This is quoting uh, the New York Times from 1962, where they are talking about the limitation of what Lee Strasberg is teaching. This is what the New York Times says in 1962. It says, uh, too much of the, quote, method talk about actors today is a defense against new artistic challenges, rationalizations for their own ineptitudes. We have a swarm of actors who are ideologues and theorists. There have been days when I felt I would swap them all for a gang of wandering players who could dance and sing and who were, above all else, entertainers. Oh, this is... This is uh, well, let me make sure. This is Elia Kazan talking about uh, what he doesn't like about Lee Strasberg. Um, let me just start that over again. Uh, too much of the, quote, method talk about actors today is a defense against new artistic challenges, rationalizations for their own ineptitudes. We have a swarm of actors who are ideologues and theorists. There have been days when I felt I would swap them all for a gang of wandering players who could dance and sing, and who were, above all else, entertainers. We will need an actor who has gone beyond the training of his psychological instrument and has really set about training his theatrical instrument. Now, I love that, as many of you will guess out there, because I have said something like this about poets and writers. Um, we have a swarm of poets and writers who are ideologues and theorists, uh, people who don't know what creativity is or haven't gotten to actual creativity, and so they are stuck with ideas and theories. Um, the idea of swapping them all out for a gang of wandering players sort of feels to me like how I sometimes want to get rid of the the uh, uh, the Penguin Book of English verse and instead read uh, the Penguin Book of English folk songs. Um, there's a different sense to it um, that at some point uh, in poetry 
uh, at least in the books that I've been reading, the anthologies that I've been reading, at some point you have someone like Shakespeare or Milton or Wordsworth or, as I've mentioned, Ted Hughes or Seamus Heaney or anyone that you can think of out there who is really powerful for you. At some point you have a rise of someone like that or of a group of people like that. And then at some point the people who come after them uh, learn from them, but then it becomes mode, it becomes pose, it becomes something frozen uh, that they have sort of deified and that they're only imitating. Um, Ted Hughes talks about the entire 18th century of poetry written in Britain as being uh, uh, a kind of reaction to uh, the British people uh, killing their own king. And for the next 150 years or so, poets were so psychologically, uh, and the culture was so psychologically stuck that all they could do was write uh, couplets. There was no ability to write outside of that. Now, you can make of that idea whatever you want. It's kind of a silly thing to read an entire culture that way. But it is strange to see how things become uh, energized and then imitated and then just dead, just deadened and frozen for good. And it's worth just, I suppose, being reminded of that. Um, and it reminds me, too, of something I have long had in mind to mention here. And again, this is stuff that I never knew until I uh, found it in a biography of somebody. This came from a biography of uh, Beethoven. And that is that uh, the composer Joseph Haydn, who lived from 17, 1732 to 1809, I had no idea. He, was, he is sometimes considered the father of the string quartet and the father of the symphony, these two huge, uh, amazing uh, uh, forms of music, of making music, the string quartet and the symphony. Again, he lives 1732 to 1809. But if you just enter the field with Beethoven, or um, if you don't read back further, you look at Beethoven, lived from 1770 to 1827, by the time Beethoven comes around, uh, he, as a, as a child and as a young man, and I guess throughout the rest of his life, is already, already, uh, Joseph Haydn dies in 1809 when Beethoven is uh, almost 40 years old. But already Beethoven is composing and writing and writing music against what people believe string quartets and symphonies should be already by that time. It has taken less than a generation uh, for it to become some thing that can only be this thing. And you better not deviate from it because a symphony is this. It's not that. A string quartet is this. It's not that. What are you doing? Um, it is remarkable to just come upon a simple fact like that, that uh, what we think of as uh, settled opinions, uh, or in this case, settled art forms, sometimes have hardly been around at all before people try to pretend that they are um, 
settled. Um, there's a nice part in, uh, in Simon Callow's review that he keeps coming back to where uh, they're talking about uh, where the author, let me get the, get the author of the book again, his name is Isaac Butler, where he constantly accuses the author of, of this book, Isaac Butler, of uh, talking about method acting in a way that uh, in a way that doesn't make any sense. He says things like, uh, so-and-so wanted actors who had the ability to understand not only the lines, but the reason for those lines. That has something to do with method acting, so the uh, Mr. Butler says. But Simon Callow is always coming back and saying something like, what on earth makes him think that every actor worth his or her salt was not concerned with exactly that issue, that actors had not, indeed, from time immemorial, been concerned with it? In other words, there's this idea that you become so caught up, whether you're writing a book about method acting or whether you consider yourself a method actor yourself, and you're working with other method actors and you're all in this hothouse of figuring this stuff out, there is this bizarre place that we put ourselves in where we imagine that nobody else is doing this, that nobody else wants the same ends that we do, that we're reinventing the wheel somehow. It's like politicians getting up and talking about how uh, they, they will fight for families and they will fight against crime as if uh, everybody doesn't want to fight for families and everybody doesn't want to fight crime. Uh, these, these weird uh, corners that we have to paint ourselves in to get things going. Um, it's, it's very interesting to think about. And the final thing that I'll do here is, um, is, let's see, someone is talking about seeing uh, the American director Joshua Logan visits Moscow in 1931 to see Stanislavski's uh, production of The Marriage of Figaro. And uh, when the production is over, uh, he goes and asks Stanislavski about his system. And Stanislavski, Stanislavski says this in response, Create your own method. Don't depend slavishly on mine. Make up something that will work for you. But keep breaking traditions, I beg you. And what that reminds me of, on the one hand, is that uh, the Torah portion for this week is the part where Abraham uh, leaves his father uh, because God has told him uh, to leave the land of his father uh, to go off uh, by himself and to go to a new place. There is always the leaving. That, that, uh, that image is always there of someone leaving, of migration. And it's wonderful to find in Judaism because Judaism is such a family-centered religion, uh, especially, you know, the temple is destroyed and the altar is replaced by the family table. Um, uh, that is, the family is the center of things, and yet also at the center 
of uh, these tales, at the center of this faith, is a man leaving his family to start something else. And you wonder how far sometimes we are meant to take a story like that. Um, does that mean, uh, for instance, if we're just thinking in terms of religion, does that mean that uh, Jews should leave Judaism? Does that mean that, uh, you know, how far does something like this go? I even found, and I don't know how it took 25 years of reading around religions to find this, I even finally found uh, somewhere in medieval Spain, I think it was, uh, a Catholic saying that um, all Christians were trying to do, all Catholics were actually, all that Catholics were actually doing uh, was imitating Abraham, um, just as Abraham left his father to, uh, to found this Israelite religion. Uh, in the same way, Catholics and uh, other Christians around the world are just leaving Judaism in the same way to do their other own thing. It makes perfect sense. Um, of course, you can do whatever you want with a text like that, if that makes you feel better. But then the, the option becomes again, well, uh, should someone be allowed to leave your Catholicism? Uh, because that is what Abraham did, and that's where vitality is. Um, it seems that that is the point. Um, on the one hand, there's, there's a picture in this article of Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio in 1955, and he's sitting there in a suit and a tie, and it looks like his, uh, his jacket is flung over the, uh, the back of the chair. Looks like there's a bunch of guys, it's mostly men, uh, sitting in the audience, um, smoking, and uh, talking about, you know, very serious things, acting, how are we going to do this? Um, it does seem to be that one of the ways in which a situation like that um, occurs and is perpetuated um, is to pretend that you have the answer, that you have a system, you should follow the system, and you will succeed. Um, and we shouldn't discount our own need as human beings, even extremely egotistical and uh, striking out on your own creative types. We need, um, even, even people like us, need to pretend that there's a place that we can sit in a circle around someone and they can tell us they have the answer and this is it. But on the other hand, um, we have to pull back from that constantly, to constantly just react against that and realize, as Stanislavski said, uh, make something up that will work for you, but keep breaking traditions, I beg you. Create your own method. There's really no answer to that at all other than movement other than momentum, other than uh, pushing yourself forward. Uh, I don't know much else about Stanislavski outside of this article. I don't imagine that he, uh, after saying this, he went out to, you know, a cast party and disbanded his theater group because you should all go out and create your own method and you should all be breaking traditions. Um, there has to be that tension between both things, and neither of them uh, can ever be the final answer. 
and it seems that if we try to keep that in mind, we will be in a much better place creatively, but also with our souls as well. And that is what I have this week for all of you out there. Um, if you find it interesting, drop me a line at the email in the post description. And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.